Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. The mail's here. All right. We're going to open up the mailbag today. We got some questions and we've got answers. So stick around after the music to see if they match. (laughs) Bingo. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, That's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? I am? Yeah. (laughs) That's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ... You're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Well, Kenny, Kenny, we've got a... It sounds like I said kitty, kitty. Well, Kenneth, we have a, uh, a wide variety of questions that were sent in for us to answer today. Quite the smattering, as it were. Indeed, all over the place, which is great. Good to mm-hmm. test our flexibility a little bit, you know? Yes, and I stretch at least once a month, so I'm pretty flexible. And, and you're ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, you know how like when you are flying somewhere and you're in the airport and then at the beginning there's this uh for boarding, there's this group that gets this priority boarding and you're like, Man, how do you how do you how do you get priority boarding? Well, in mailbag episodes, you get priority boarding when you send in an audio question yes. through Facebook, as we've advertised in the past. You just pull us up on Facebook, the Do Theology page. You go to the message thing. You, you, you push the little microphone where you hold down and you send us a message. We play the audio on the episode and we answer it. What an amazing, beautiful system. It's like voicemail. Yeah, it's like voicemail, except we yeah. don't have to go through the hassle of getting a number and all that stuff. Perfect. So first mailbag question today comes from Zach in Oklahoma. You ready for this? Yes. Good evening, gentlemen. Um, had a question for you guys. Recently, a brother and sister in Christ um, came to my wife and I and raised, the quest- raised this question, and I immediately wanted to know your thoughts. Regarding the Lord's Supper, could you please address, from a biblical perspective, the issue of wine versus grape juice? Were the contents of the cup, as mentioned in Scripture, wine or grape juice, and if we were to conclude that those contents were likely wine, are we in error to draw the conclusion that wine is then required by the current church when we take the Lord's Supper? Further, where would you put this issue on the chart? This, these friends of ours recently left their local church over this issue because they believe God commands the use of wine over grape juice. Thought it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. Thank you guys for what you do. 
All right. Mm. So, wine and juice, communion. What do you think, Ken? This is, this is a little bit of a this is a bit of a fun one. Uh, it's very interesting to hear that someone left their church over this conviction. Um, <laughs> I I don't know that I could ever imagine myself leaving a church over this particular issue. I understand that people can develop convictions on this. You know, to answer the last question first, where would we fit it on the chart? Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself by trying to answer that now. Um, but to me, that's a I, I I would think of that as a secondary issue. We don't have mm-hmm. a direct command in Scripture that says, thou shalt use wine or grape juice, even for that matter. Um, we just have the example that's set, and... I guess the question is, do we have good reason to ever deviate from the example? We do have in Matthew twenty six twenty nine Jesus talking about the fruit of the vine, where he mm-hmm. tells his disciples, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So doesn't say specifically, I will not drink this wine again, or I will not drink this Welch's grape juice again. <laughs> It wasn't there, Welch's? Uh, you know, it may have been Langer's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, you know, the disciples were fishermen, uh, many of them, pretty poor. So maybe Clover Valley from Dollar General. No ocean but, <laughs> breeze or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, oinos, the word for wine, that's kind of an interesting study. You ever done any study on that, Ken? Uh, truthfully, word? I have not. It. The only time I've really heard an in-depth study on that was when MacArthur did it. And he did that study answering the question in like a three-part sermon series, answering the question, can Christians drink alcohol? Hmm. And I don't know if they've like buried that or if it's still available online or whatever. I had it at one point. But he basically goes through and talks about what wine was like during their times which, of course, is different. Just like we were joking around with grape juice being different today than it was then. Do you think they you know, went to the grocery store and got Boone's Farm for wine you know, off the shelf or whatever? No, uh, it was different. I mean, a lot of times this uh, mixture of, or the fermented grape, I guess you could say, was preserved in like a jam form, and then it would have to be mixed with water. And you can go back into Homer's writings, reading the Odyssey or the Iliad, or both, one of those, where there's reference to that type of winemaking as they were preserving the fruit and then later having to mix it with water to make the drink, yada, yada, yada. And so trying to discern exactly what it was like, I mean, was there a significant alcohol content or not? Well, you've got you know, the the instance in Acts chapter 2 where they were saying, well, the disciples, now that they're speaking you know, in these tongues over here, they must have been drinking from early on in the day. They've been drinking all day. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that say about the alcohol content of the wine back then? Did they have to drink all day to get to that point, um, meaning it was like a marginal amount of alcohol or not? I mean, I, who knows? Um, we can't really pinpoint that. And so you have churches then that land in these different spots with sh- using wine or using juice in communion. Every church I've been a part of has used juice. Probably no surprise there. I imagine same for you. Yeah, same, same. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't imagine anybody calling out a church and saying, you're in error for using one or the other. Uh, That is just so crazy to me. 
yeah. in either direction. I agree. I, I, I get a little, um, you know, when, when we went through the whole COVID thing, uh, there was a lot of interesting ways that uh, communion sought to be observed by people, you know, virtually. And I got uncomfortable with a little bit of the way some places were doing this. Some, you know, you could watch a sermon online and, you know, a pastor could say something like, you know, you know, whatever, whatever you've got handy, just, just go to the fridge, whatever's in the fridge and grab you whatever juice is there. And, um, or, you know, and whatever, you know, a, you know, to, whatever to represent the bread, you know, just a piece of bread or, Whatever you've got handy, and um, gummy get, bears and diet coke, man. Yeah, so I, I got a little bit uncomfortable with uh, with the flippancy towards the the elements that way, um, but at the same time, I don't know. Just to to go so far this way to say, oh, if you do not have wine, I'm going to leave your church. Um, that seems to be a misplaced priority. Uh, I would not be surprised to learn if yeah. there were some other issues going on there that, and that was just kind of the smokescreen issue. Um, but yes. Yeah. To talk about it with such certainty is a little bit crazy. To me, it would fall into the same category as should baptism always be in live running water or can you do it in still water? Mm-hmm. Could, I mean, can you do it in a chlorinated pool that you have on the campus of your church or does it have to be in live cold running water out somewhere uh, like the Didache taught in the early church, right? True, uh, yeah. There's actually some some strong evidence for for uh, what the early church believed about that. But either way, I mean, it's a matter of Christian uh, freedom of expression. The churches can choose whichever route they want to go. The uh, unacceptable route would be not practicing or making a mockery of it. Yes, yeah. And it's interesting. I think if you were if we were to do a historical survey, the using of grape juice is probably a pretty novel concept, I would guess. I've never done that historical study, but if I were to guess, I'd say the majority of the Christian church, the view, the practice just would have been with wine, mm. um, and the grape juice would have been a pretty novel invention as there would have been some groups reacting against the consumption of alcohol, is my guess. Again, not having how, done that study. How old even is grape juice? Like the existence yeah. of non-alcoholic wine, essentially. Like, that's I don't a, even know. Yeah, that's another good question. But fruit of the vine, that I think that is critical, you know, so where you're not swapping out. Like Mormons, actually, maybe people don't know this, Mormons use water. <laughs> really? Did not yeah. know that. Yeah, it's... One of the many things they do that's just kind of interesting. I, I heard uh, a uh, I heard a story one time of there was a tribe, uh, a remote tribe off somewhere. I don't even know what country or continent it was in, but there's this remote tribe, and they uh, when they observed the Lord's table, it was with Coca Cola, and the reason for that was they did not have access, first of all, to any wine or grape juice in their country. It just was not a product that was available to them. But they still wanted to observe this thing, and to them, the most expensive and the most challenging to acquire beverage was Coke that mm. they could actually acquire was Coke. So to them, they they would pool their money together and sacrifice to purchase it and so that they would partake of it together. And they brought in the symbolism of the value of this beverage in kind of brought that into the significance of observing the Lord's table together. So that's kind of interesting. I've never, you know, when, when you're in a situation where uh, the, you know, just the access to the elements is so different. I think we've talked about this on a different episode hmm. where 
I don't remember which episode we talked about it is, but uh, when your access is limited, what are you going to do? Are you just going to not observe this thing that Christ said to observe, or is there going to be more freedom? And I think the yeah. answer has to be, well, we're going to allow for more freedom in order to have obedience to Christ. And that was a, a distinction with the, like, the COVID situation where— yeah. Uh, yeah, you can't all be together having the exact same thing, uh, you know, for whatever time period that was for people, not being able to gather for whatever reason. Uh, but at the same time, in the Western world, we still had ready access to grape juice or wine yeah. or yeah. whatever kind of bread you wanted. Uh, so that mockery that people made of it was really sad, like mm. Skittles and tea, I think, was one that we saw uh, mm. online. So, Yikes. Stupid. That's stupid. All right. Moving on from that, let's go to the Twitter sphere where we got a question from MJ asking about the dispensational view of the imputation of Christ's active obedience. Uh, asking us to explain that, adding please. And then also tacking onto that, how should we understand what happened in the garden? And that I think needs further explanation. If we're talking about Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane, and what exactly more explanation is needed for? Yeah, <laughs> we need more context. Yeah, but um, the dispensational view of the act of obedience of Christ. Now, I guess I should say right off the bat that maybe there's not a dispensational view that is across the board. John Nelson Darby, the name that is the hot button name. Uh, widely regarded as the father of dispensationalism. He did write about this, and it's a very interesting read. And I will say that there's a clear Reformed view of this. Uh, mm -hmm. The Reformed view states that the righteousness that is credited to the believer in the finished work of Christ is the active obedience of Christ who kept the law perfectly in his earthly life, uh, some actually going as far to say that his atonement began there with his living. Uh, R.C. Sproul articulates this in a couple different places, and uh, other reformers through history have, that that Christ began his atoning work for his elect people, or for the Father's people that were given to the Son, from the moment of conception, as he lived a life in their stead, keeping the law. Now, this does stem a bit from the covenant of works that's within Reformed theology. Mm -hmm. The covenant of works is the idea that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden and said, if you perform righteous deeds only, perpetually, you will live. And, of course, Adam broke that covenant. And uh, then Jesus comes as the second Adam, and he does that. He lives that perfect life. And that is a part of his atoning work. And so that's why when someone believes to the Reformed theologian, <clears throat> that person receives the righteous life of Christ on his account. And actually, some people would go as far to say that in that covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden, that uh, God gave Adam the Ten Commandments to keep, even including the Sabbath, which is just very interesting thing. Hmm. Well, we are not reformed. We do not believe there was a covenant of works. And so that begs the question, what on earth do we believe about Christ's act of obedience and the righteousness that is transferred to the believer's account upon salvation, the first moment of salvation? I'll throw this out there first, Ken, and then just let you take the wheel from there. Okay. Because <laughs> we've talked about this a little bit in the past. We did, yes. Um, but it's been a while. It's been probably a year or more. 
I, uh, when I first came across this issue, uh, because I had heard from a number of preachers about this act of obedience of Christ being transferred to our account. And that was kind of the position I took by default because I listened to a lot of reformed preachers like many of us do, and we very much appreciate them. And well, there's, as that, I, there's that great quote by Jake Gresham Machen about ooh. on his deathbed. Uh, the last telegram he ever sent was, so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if I remember that. Okay. So at least for that reformer, it was a very important doctrine. Wow. Uh, And so, you know, I I started, okay, thinking through that uh, and how I would explain it. Well, not being reformed and not having this view of the covenant of works, I don't, you know, start there. I I, I start with what does Scripture say about the righteousness Hmm. that's credited to our account? And uh, as I went down that road, what I find is that it doesn't specifically say that the only righteousness that's credited to our account is the righteousness of Jesus's earthly life. Instead, what you have starting all the way back at Abraham in Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness is this idea of total righteousness, complete righteousness being transferred to the believer's account. In second Corinthians five twenty one. It says that the believer receives the righteousness of God. Okay, that's a pretty broad term. And of course, it would include the righteousness of Jesus during his earthly life. When, uh, you know, Jesus was baptized, he said he was being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He, he lived a perfectly righteous life. That is absolutely true. And I believe that's an aspect of what we receive as the righteousness of God. But I don't know if I would say that's the only righteousness we receive. Uh, but instead, we are counted as totally, completely holy and worthy because we have the total righteousness of God credited to our account, which includes and I think even goes beyond the 33-year life of Jesus to include um, the righteousness of God at, at his core, you could say, that uh, an aspect of his nature, who he is, that he is completely holy, and he gives us all of his righteousness in Christ so that positionally we are absolutely, totally, through and through saved. Amen. Yeah, there's a couple of passages that refer to... What was the passage you just referenced? I referenced Second Corinthians 5.21 and then okay. the baptism of Matthew 3. There's also Second Corinthians... One, Jesus became to us righteousness from God. Hmm. There's also Philippians chapter 3 that says uh, that uh, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I guess it says the righteousness from God. It doesn't specify whose righteousness exactly is being imputed to our account there. Of course, in that context there, there's um, that imputation language idea is present. The word imputation is not there, but the idea is. So yeah, there's righteousness that's given. You know, it's interesting. There's that phrase that often gets used where, uh, you know, you can't, we're not saved by works, right? We're not saved by law keeping. But then these individuals that affirm this, uh, this concept say, well, actually, we're not saved by our law keeping, but we are saved by Christ's law keeping. Yes, that's a popular phrase. And, and it, it can come across like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But what is it assuming? Yeah, it's, just, it's assuming a lot of, it's assuming that the, uh, um, 
Well, first of all, it, it actually the irony of this, I think, is that it actually creates a works-based means of salvation mm-hmm. where, okay, yes, it's not dependent on our works, it's dependent upon Christ's work, which in a sense, obviously, there is an aspect of, of there had to be the work of Christ done in order for us to receive salvation, but it feels a little bit like a sleight of hand aspect of just like, well, we're just kind of, we're just going to shift things over a little bit. And yeah. the work that the New Testament talks about is his death, his sacrifice, yes. and his his priestly office in our place. It, the New Testament doesn't point us to his life as the atoning work, but right. his death as the atoning work. Yeah. And so someone might ask, well, then what's the point of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness? What's the point of Jesus living a perfect life that we couldn't live? And there certainly is a point. Oh yeah, and and I, and I wouldn't dismiss right offhand that that righteousness uh, is transferred to us. I do think that is incorporated in the the righteousness of God. I, um, but I think maybe more so the point is that he was proving that he truly was the spotless Lamb, mm-hmm. being led to the cross in obedience as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to die in our place for our sins, to be our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he had to be spotless. And he proved that with his living, that he was absolutely righteous in all that he ever thought, said, or did. And so maybe that is more of the point. And the only reason to say that the righteousness of God that's put onto our account is limited to Jesus's earthly life is because you're starting with that covenant of works theological framework. And because we don't start there, we actually don't end there either. You know, it's interesting with uh, so much of this comes back to our our hermeneutical lenses and how we read Scripture and uh, try to avoid reading Scripture through our theology. That's something that we we do seek to avoid. Excuse me. Uh, So I was taking a class through Shepherd's Theological Seminary and my professor, and I'm, this was said in class. I'm not sure how much he wants me to quote him. Uh, if it was one of those things, it's just like, okay, I'm just going to make this comment. But uh, the, the comment is essentially this. Can you identify a more beloved doctrine that has so little exegetical support for it? There's just no text that just lays out, oh yeah, this mm. is this is the righteousness that's credited to us, and yet this doctrine is like embraced and held up as like, oh yes, the active obedience of Christ, and it's emphasized so strongly, and yet there's no exegetical support clearly teaching this doctrine. And I think there's only one passage that I remember my professor bringing up, but even if you look at that, it's a pretty weak case for that doctrine. Which again isn't to say that there's no there's nothing to that mm-hmm. theology, only that there's more likely going on than just the act of obedience of Christ. Yes. Yep. Definitely more of a theological thing than an exegetical thing. So well, we got an email about the book of Revelation. A couple of questions in that one, wasn't there? Yes. Two questions. This is from well, let me get up here. This is from Steve. Steven? Yes. <clears throat> so I had two questions. The first one is that given the fact that the New Testament writers were consistent in recording fulfilled prophecies, why wasn't the destruction of Jerusalem mentioned if Revelation was written after AD 70? 
so um, certain people have to place the writing of Revelation before the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, they believe that the events of Revelation uh, 6 through 18, most of them stop short of saying all of Revelation, but some of them <laughs> go as far to say all of Revelation. But they believe that those events were fulfilled in 70 AD in the aftermath, the destruction of Jerusalem in that year. Uh, th these people are either preterists, that's the group that's heretical that says even Jesus's second coming was fulfilled then, or partial preterists uh, who say that everything up to Jesus's second coming happened literally, well, kind of literally, in 70 AD-ish when Jerusalem was destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the common retorts, there are many retorts to that, but one of the common ones is, well, wait a second, it appears as though Revelation wasn't even written before 70 AD. It looks like it was somewhere like 90 to 95 AD, to which those people will then respond, but John doesn't even mention the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a pretty big event that he doesn't even mention. What do you make of that? And that's almost like saying, uh, you know, I was reading an article the other day about how America is really on the downward slide and things are getting really bad here. And it didn't even mention 9-11. I don't think a 9-11 really even happened. Because <laughs> now think about this. The destruction of Jerusalem, if, if say Revelation was written in 95 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem was 25 years before, and everybody knew about it. 9-11, from our perspective today, was not even 22 full years ago. It was 21 and a half years ago. Everybody knows about it, big event. And to say that I was reading something that had to do with, you know, where we are today and where this is all headed, and it didn't even mention this event from 21 and a half years ago, so therefore I don't believe that happened. Like, it, it's weird. It's a very yeah. weird argument, a very weak argument. And and it's even if the time gap was smaller, it's just a simple question of what was John's purpose in writing. It apparently was outside the scope of his purpose because yeah. it's not mentioned there. So that's yeah. I it, it I do find it to be a bit of a weak argument as well. Yeah, that it's trying to make a logical connection when there's not any kind of logical precedent. But what's that second question, Ken? Yes, the longer so one. The second question has a bit of a longer run-up of just a couple of details and then a second question at the end. In Revelation 11, when John was, giving, was given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God, but to exclude the outer court because it had been given to the Gentiles who will trample on the city for 42 months— in context, Jesus has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place, Revelation 1.1. Thus, the prophecy concerns a future event of the temple being trampled, certainly not one that had already taken place 25 years earlier. It cannot be talking about a future temple when the New Testament calls for the Gentiles to worship with the Jews with no distinction, Acts 15. To believe otherwise would be to say that there was somehow a regression where segregation again exists and that the Gentiles are second-class worshipers in the outer court. And it cannot be talking about a heavenly temple because no outer court exists. So my second question is, wouldn't this have to mean for John that this is speaking of an earthly temple that is still erected, which would then, now I'm adding my comment, he's given credence to the idea that this would have been talking about AD 70. 
Right. All right. So um, the heart of this objection, again, to me, comes from trying to make a logical connection where there is no logical precedent. Same kind of thing. He's saying, look, if this is talking about a future temple, say John wrote this in 95 AD after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, and he's talking about, again, when a temple will be constructed, and there's an inner court and an outer court once again, and Gentiles are in the outer court, but the inner court is only for the Jews, wouldn't that be a regression in God's program uh, where God would be going backwards and uh, kind of undoing the unity that we now have as Jew and Gentile in Christ where we are one new man? So the, the logical precedent that he thinks exists here is that this would be some sort of regression, it would be going backwards, and it would be uh, harming—it would be God basically harming his own program the way he's set things up to function. And the reason why I say there, that logical precedent doesn't exist is because um, who are we to assume that God's program should go the way that we think it should go? Uh, for instance, Anthony Hokema, one of the leading— millennial scholars down through the ages who's written a book on that that's widely regarded as authoritative for that subject. He uses the illustration of, when talking about dispensationalism, if Israel once again has a prominent ethnic place in God's program, national ethnic Israel has a prominent place in the program, it would be like putting the scaffolding back up on a finished building. So in that illustration... He's again making this logical assumption that the church is it. Here we are as the church. We're the finished building. And to say that the program is going to go back to having a a place for Israel in the program, in an ethnic sense, the descendants of Jacob, and that they would be a nation again in their land with prominence among the nations, well, that would be like putting scaffolding back up on this finished building. Uh well, excuse me, sir, uh, aren't you just kind of saying, I have an idea of the way this should go, and it should not go that way, and so I'm going to use this illustration and make it sound stupid. Whenever it's just like, hey, I, just read the book. Just yeah. read what, what God has laid out, what God said he's going to do. And after you ascertain that, then make your logic come into conformity with that. Right. But don't take your pre-existing logic here about how you think it should go, project it onto the Bible storyline and say, huh, well, see, the Bible must not mean what it says because my logic points me this direction. Right. Yeah, baked into the question is an assumption. It seems to be that the assumption that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. And yep. we do not believe that's the case. We don't believe that that is taught in Scripture. And there are many, many passages that we could go to that look forward to a restoration of Israel as a national enti- ethnic entity, uh, and that's that's part of God's program, and that's coming. Like, it's, it's, it's going to come, because God is faithful to fulfill His promises, so you can bank on that. Mm-hmm. The church is a mystery, meaning it was not given in detailed revelation uh, in the Old Testament. It was revealed through the apostles, uh, particularly in Paul, talking about this in Ephesians 3. This is an unforeseen administration of of God's program where the, the church exists as one new man for Jew and Gentile. Yet there's coming a day when God is going to make all things right and fulfill all that he said to Israel. And 
all things will be carried out in Israel with, with Jesus reigning in Jerusalem. All things will be carried out in, in a way that's unblemished. Mm. They will be able to uphold uh, these commands of God without the influence of sin. And won't that be a beautiful kind of summing up of all things that as Israel failed over and over and over and over again <laughs> to do what God told them to do, there's coming a day when he's going to restore them and they're going to demonstrate his goodness through their living. And uh, Jesus himself will be ruling the nations with a rod of iron and uh, the disciples will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I mean, it's going to be an amazing time. And for us to say, well, I don't like the way that that flows, so it must be wrong, is really arrogant and a very bad way to go about building your theology. I also think the the assumption behind, oh, wouldn't wouldn't it, a court for the Gentiles, wouldn't that make them second-class worshipers? I, I just reject the premise of that. Yeah, right. In the same way that I, I say that a... Uh, you know, a wife submitting to her husband makes her a second-class citizen or member of the family. For us to reign with Christ, to judge angels, potentially, I, I don't know how much we can develop this theology, but judging the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Uh, not having to go through Jacob's trouble, as mm. Jeremiah 30 talks about, to get there, I'd say we're pretty darn privileged. <laughs> 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 so... Uh, to me, it's just crazy. And, and you know, guys like this, I just want to wonder, um, have you read your Old Testament? Go to the end of Zechariah, Zechariah 14. you got Egyptians practicing the Feast of Tabernacles. Hmm. So you're, you're telling me you're going to go with your logic and say, no, that can't be. That can't mean exactly what it says. And it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty plain. You've got Egyptians here who are going to be participating in the Feast of Booths under the direction of the manifest King, Lord Jesus, reigning over the face of the earth. It's just clearly laid out. Or in Isaiah 19, you've got Egypt, Assyria, and Israel all getting along, all being God's people with a highway that goes between them, and there's peace and safety and harmony and all this stuff. And you're just going to say, no, nah, that's not what that means. It doesn't make sense to me that we would that the world would go that direction. I mean, I don't want to like trash. I don't want to poo-poo on this guy. But have you read your Old Testament? That, that's my question. Mm-hmm. Well, do thank you for writing in, Steve. And we, uh, we do appreciate the question. And, it, you know, reading these questions makes us think and challenges us. And I hope that articulation is helpful as you try to think through things from our perspective as well. Well, over on Facebook, we got a smattering of yeah. questions. Obadiah says, how are Ken and Jeremy getting along so far this baseball season as Ken sips from his Cubs mug for those of you listening on the podcast instead of watching on YouTube so if if we had recorded so we are recording this on Cinco de Mayo May 5th right the the revenge of the 5th for all the Star Wars nerds out there if we had recorded this episode one week ago today this would have been a very a much happier conversation on my end. It's still a happy conversation because the Cubs are doing much better than the Cardinals. But they've had a rough week. So it's uh, it's a little bit... The the feeling has soured just a touch. But yeah, go Cubs are doing well. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit 
fun to see the the Cardinals over there. Not only as the last place in the division, but uh, worst record in the National League. <laughs> don't get Unreal, to say that very kinda. often. I don't get to say that very often. I gotta. You've I never gotta... been able to say that in your whole life. <laughs> I, I mean, that's out, true. Outside of like first week of baseball, Cardinals start zero and three kind of thing. I mean, right? Yeah. This is absolutely ridiculous. I kind of <laughs> hate baseball right now. My favorite team in the American League is the Oakland Athletics. Now, they're the worst team in all of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> They've won like two games. So I'm trying to find joy in like watching other games right now. And oh, man, it's pretty bad. This, this is really bad. And so, I am enjoying this for however long it lasts. It's very strange being in the basement of the National League Central. It's very sticky down here, and it smells like old tacos. You should be well acquainted with the oh. sights and smells of the basement. <laughs> you cubby fan. All right. Another baseball-related question. Are pitch clocks a heretical primary column violation no what do you think of the pitch clocks I, we have not had this conversation yet i love it i mean we we kind of did last year when we were at that minor league game in albuquerque oh, we yeah. got to witness the pitch clocks in That's real life right. i love pitch clock i i i think it could be slowed down a little bit uh i do think actually that's part if you would Dear listener, if you would allow this digression, we'll be back to theology in just a couple minutes here. I do think that's a part of the Cardinals' problem. They had so many players in the World Baseball Classic. They have, the, I think, most of any major league team. And they missed spring training, getting into the rhythm of the new rules. I think that's a part of the problem. I don't know how big of a part. It could be 10%. could be 50%. I don't know. But um, it do, it is an adjustment for all the players. And... Spring training was vital this year, and Cardinals had all their main guys jumping around all these. And, and they weren't even on the same team. That's the other thing. Cardinals had a guy in Team Canada, a guy in South Korea, a guy in Japan. So, I don't know. I like the I like the pitch clock, though. The, I think the pitch clock is great. I think, that's a, I think that's a pretty lame excuse for the Cardinals if that's why they're not winning. They've had a month to get over it but they got uh, no mojo they I, they could they didn't develop their mojo in spring training okay i would i'd be interested to see a table of how many uh, players from each team participated in the wbc uh and see where those teams are in their record because my hunch would be that there would be other teams that had a high number of players and are not the worst team in the national league no they're better at but, adapting than the cardinals players maybe there are other mm, factors May, mm, well, anyway, that's that's a little bit of a of a side thing from the pitch clock. I I do really enjoy the pitch clock thing. I enjoy the new pace of the game. I I agree that maybe they could add uh, hmm. maybe two seconds. You found the answer. Astros and Cardinals both had thirteen uh, in the WBC. Astros had a very slow start to the season too. I don't know what the record is now. They were like ten and ten at one point for defending world champs. That's kind of a sluggish start. And the Mets were second place with 10. So Cardinals and Astros at 13 each. Well, the Mets are third in their division at 16 and 16. And the Astros are third in their division at 16 and 15. Ha-ha! Boom! Both of those are much better records than 10 and 22. Yeah, but I'm I'm thinking there might be a correlation there, Kenny. 
Eh, it could be. Because we'll it see. wasn't just the pitch clock. It's also the bases. I mean, you see how yeah. many, like, Pirates are first in the NL Central, and they've stolen the most bases in the NL Central. True. So. Yeah, anyway. no, that's, uh, I, generally I'm a fan of all the rule changes that have gone into place, except for I still don't like the uh, the Ghost Runner in extra innings. Uh, I, I still would prefer at least through the 11th, um, if, if maybe the ghost runner thing didn't start until the 12th inning, but we should probably get back to theology. We got people turning off and saying, oh, I I didn't come here for a baseball talk. We don't have a baseball podcast. But the three people who watch baseball, who listen to us, they really enjoyed that. Yeah. I hope so. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, next thing. What's the next thing here? Can we go into uh, Facebook? Donna asks on yes. Facebook, why are there so many confessions? What are the similarities and differences? How would you go about answering that first question, Ken? It's pretty open-ended. Why are there so many confessions? Uh, because as different people came to different convictions on on st- when as studying the Scripture, they developed these documents to articulate what they believed. Mm-hmm. But shouldn't uh, shouldn't there be just a couple of those, like two or three of those, instead of I don't know, twenty or more? Yeah, it'd be nice if if everyone had mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we've touched on this issue in a couple other episodes at different points. I think there's one in particular about uh, we had an episode. Oh, what was the title of it? Um, the, the topic was you know why are there so many differences of opinion on things. Uh, do you remember the title of that episode? Uh, Does God Desire Doctrinal Differences, perhaps, was the title of it. Yes. Uh, and we, we touched on it at that point about why there are dis- differences to begin with, because those differences, again, you know, they find their way into these confessions. Uh, each departure, you know, every, you know e- the, <laughs> the history of the Christian Church is really a history of of schisms and lines being drawn as different groups, you know, there's debate within a church and those debates kind of rise to a head and they decide, you know what, we cannot, we, we don't have enough common ground right now. We're going to split apart so you can have your conviction and we're going to have our conviction. And then the statements are written to reflect that. And that has really just kind of continued on throughout church history. Um, so that's, that's really, I mean, that's from a carnal, or a, I say carnal, but just earthly, fleshly human perspective. That's why, that's why they exist. Yeah. That was episode 63, Does God Desire Doctrinal Differences? So that will start answering that question a little bit. But asking what are the similarities and differences, here's a real basic way that you can think through it. You basically have two time periods where confessions are being written in mass, in my mind. Now, I'm totally open to correction on the way I view church history, but this is the way I always think of it. You had the early church going up through the 5th century A.D., where you start off with like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and then you get into the Athanasian Creed and the Chalcedonian uh, Creed, Confession. I don't know the right term for that. But you have creeds and confessions established early on that kind of built on each other. They didn't disagree. They weren't Mm. creating new denominational streams or anything like that. But it was Christians articulating what they believed. And, you know, Apostles' Creed is very basic when you look at it, but it's very early, too, and it's just very basic. Nicene Creed adds a little more. When you get into the Athanasian, Chalcedonian creeds, they're talking more and more about Trinitarian issues and articulating the Trinity from Scripture because they were having to deal with heretics who were teaching false things about the nature of God in the early church. 
So that's one era where it's like steps building on each other. Now, fast forward a thousand years and you get to the Reformation era and you have these confessions like the Westminster Confession, the original London Baptist Confession, and the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, I don't know, other ones. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what you have now are streams of the Protestant church beginning to form denominationally. So if you were to compare the Westminster Catechism with the Second London Baptist Confession, there's a ton of overlap. I don't know what percentage uh, agreement there is, and almost word for word, I think, agreement, but it's really high, a really high Mm -hmm. percentage. But you'll start to see a difference with baptism, of course, because the Westminster Confession is a Presbyterian document that talks about the purpose of baptism and linking the uh, circumcision in Israel to baptizing infants today in the church. Uh, You have that going on, whereas Baptists don't believe that. They practice believer's baptism, which I think in our last episode, if I'm thinking about when our episodes come out correctly, our last episode was an interview with Peter Gaiman where we talked through all that stuff. So uh, you, you have these different streams that are very similar but have some distinctives within them, and that's how you can think about those later confessions. Yeah, and, and actually that leads all the way up to today with church doctrinal statements, I guess. Um, yeah. And there are some denominations like the Southern Baptists who have the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Every one of their churches at least affirms that, if not explicitly puts that forward as their doctrinal statement. And uh, associations like what we're a part of, the IFCA International, where we have a shared doctrinal statement that we agree with. So that's how I view it. I think that's right, you know, and, and, you know, we, today there are still statements being developed that would probably, would stop short of being called like a confession, mm-hmm. um, but we, there's different statements that different people get together, usually responding to something going on in the world, in the culture, or within theological developments that necessitates directly responding to something. So that's where a lot of these statements and a lot of these things come from, and the similarities and the differences are going to be as varied as whatever issue is being addressed at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, like the Nashville statement, which was on sexuality, human sexuality, the Dallas statement, which was on social justice and the gospel. So Chicago statement on inerrancy. Very good. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 63, Does God Desire Doctrinal Differences? And I would say the same thing to Logan, who asked us on Facebook about some of these things, too. Yep. Uh, does Does God like that there are denominations that disagree, he asks. And so we covered that pretty extensively in that episode to try to nail down that question. So, um, next question is from Paul. Paul in Ohio. When I know we're someone lives, I can throw the state. <laughs> or maybe he's actually in Kentucky. Now that I think about it, I think he's in, in Florence, Kentucky. Anyway, oh. Paul. Paul asks, what is the relationship between biblical theology and systematic theology? Mm. To what extent should archaeological discoveries that shed light on the word of the biblical writers, like the discovery of the you? Ugaritic. 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 Now you just messed up me being able to pronounce it right. <laughs> Ugaritic. Ugaritic texts. So the discovery of the Ugaritic texts and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls as examples. How should discoveries like that impact our exegesis? That's a good question. We actually at yeah. one time talked about doing an episode about the difference between 
uh, hermeneutical disagreements and exegetical disagreements or something like that. We probably would have gotten to this in that episode. But as it is, uh, two, two questions. First one being, what's the relationship between biblical and systematic theologies? And the second, how much do archaeological discoveries impact our interpretation? That's good. That first question, differences, the relationship between biblical theology and systematic theology, it's, it's a really good question, and, and a, one that I think that's helpful for us to think about when we talk about doing theology, as our show is called, Do Theology. I like the way it's often pictured as these, as like a pyramid shape of steps that kind of build upon one another as you try to wrestle with the text. There's you know exegetical theology, where you're just going through the text, and you're identifying the words, you're understanding the words in the context and everything, and your your exegesis is flowing out from that. That's exegetical theology, the, what's available there in the text. As you begin to I pull out that data, the next layer up is the biblical theology, where which is often described as, okay, this is what the Bible teaches, uh, or this is what a book—oftentimes it's like, oh, a biblical theology of God in Genesis. Let's just start there. What is everything, as you move through the biblical text of Genesis, what is everything that Genesis teaches us about God? And it's really just kind of focusing on what's in the text. There's not a lot of cross-referencing going on. There's not a lot of pulling from these other texts. It's just moving through the text and identifying the theology that's present. The next layer up from there is systematic theology, which takes all of that data and puts it all in these categories and says, okay— Someone did a biblical theology of God from Genesis and from Exodus and from all these other all these other passages. Now I'm pulling all that data together and saying this is what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of God. And then there's a lot of proof text in there. See, we can find this over here, we find this over there, we find this over there. And so there's that's kind of the steps up from there. And if we were to put one final capstone on top, it's practical theology, which is how, okay, now we have this systematic theology. Now we know the theology, all the categories of how everything fits in. How do we allow that to impact how we live our lives? Where does the theology impact our daily living? So I I like to picture it that way. It's often drawn that way. If you open up textbooks that talk about these things, it's often pictured that way. I think that's a helpful way to understand the relationship between the two. You can't do good systematic theology unless there's been good biblical theology that has been done to undergird it. So so one sentence, biblical theology is, how would you finish that? Biblical theology is the study, oh, I've never tried to put this in one sentence before. <laughs> biblical theology is studying the scriptures to identify the theology that is present as you move through it. Okay. And systematic theology is? Systematic theology is pulling together all of the data of what the Bible says about a particular topic and collating that together in one place. Okay, yeah. Good. And, of course, to do, like you said, to do good systematic theology, you have to do good biblical theology. Mm-hmm. But in order to go, to have good biblical theology, you have to have good interpretive skills yeah. here. Good exegetical uh, theology, yeah. Yes. So... Let's get into a second question. How would you answer this, Ken, about the archaeological discoveries? How should those, he asks, shed light on the world of the biblical writers? And, of course, from there, impact our interpretation or our exegesis. It's a very good question, and I'm, uh, I, I have a, 
I have a flippant answer that's only that's uh, kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also kind of serious. And the answer is, it shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've heard you kind of go off on this subject before, Ken. I know you have some strong feelings. Yeah. So you know this uh, this question actually comes into play a little bit. You know, okay, we did a couple episodes on the whole head coverings thing, right? And so people, a lot of people try to explain away head coverings by pulling up all this archaeological evidence of different things. And when you examine all that data, it actually doesn't help you go anywhere in understanding what the meaning of that text is because the data is really kind of all over the place. There's not a unified presentation of this issue from the available documentation. But you think about other texts uh, where... You know, people can rely upon archaeological things. And, and I, I want to be careful not to overstate things. I do believe yeah. archaeological evidence can be helpful in our understanding and filling out our understanding of yes. a biblical text. Like uh, the Bible handbooks and stuff like that that, yeah. that take you into the city. And Well, this, this past Sunday I preached a sermon about the Bema seat of Christ, mm. the judgment seat of Christ, and we were in Second Corinthians 5. And the Bema seat in Corinth is still standing today. And so to be able to show that picture to the congregation is a sweet visual that really helps them understand why Paul was using that language and drawing on that yeah. illustration that they were familiar with. But it obviously didn't change anything as we interpreted it in the text. Yes. And so a lot of people talk about like how, oh, traveling to Israel was like the most life-changing thing for me in my study of the scriptures because... You know, it kind of takes everything. You're just reading words on the page, and now you're seeing it all in living color. And, you know, you can kind of picture like, oh, yeah, when, when the Bible talks about them walking along the side, oh, I, I walked there, you know, and all this stuff. And I think that those things can be helpful genuinely. They can kind of, you know, maybe bring color to, to the image. They can, you know, I've heard it described as like, I went from 2D to 3D, you know, type of thing. And I think that stuff can be genuinely helpful and edifying. I want to stop short of saying that they're necessary. I believe that we can study the Word of God and come to accurate understanding of what the text means and what it means for my life apart from the archaeological discoveries and things that have been made. I think that stuff can help and bring, like I said, bring color and maybe uh, you know just kind of bring a sharper image to some things, but I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, there's there's certainly value in that. We would for never sure. say it's a it's worthless to go see Israel. Like we we would never say that. Mm -mm. Um, but I mean, when you were in the middle of one of your, you know, famous epic Ken Chip Chase rants and you were just railing against this, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just messing with you. But one of the things you said before, though, you, you used the example of the church at Laodicea and how yeah. Jesus talked about, um, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. I'm spitting you out of my mouth and how so often, you know, pastors will point to, well, in Laodicea, they had these aqueducts and there was hot water that was useful. There was cold water that was useful, but then there's this tepid water, uh, that's not useful. We know this even today. And so, um, because you go back and you study that they had these springs or aqueducts or whatever, and there were hot ones and cold ones. That's why he used that illustration and that's how it made sense to them. But today, you know, people will often misinterpret that and say, Jesus wishes you were a believer or an unbeliever, clearly one or the other, but because you're riding the fence on with your faith, he's going to spit you out of his mouth. But you have to go back and you have to view the archaeological evidence to understand that. Now, you kind of referenced that whole scenario and said, you don't believe you have to know the yeah. cultural situation to understand that. So you want to speak to that specific issue? Yeah, so in that text, there's, 
obviously the this is I think this is really one of the most clearest examples of how this is helpful but not necessary. Most clearest. Yes. Where having that imagery of the aqueducts and how you know the water was used and all that stuff is just like, oh wow, this is just that's really neat and it just brings some clarity and things and it kind of helps uh, maybe uh, again just kind of bring things from you know maybe black and white to color. You know that that's it, that, it's really helpful. But I think we could just study that text without knowing that archaeological information and get to an accurate understanding. If we understand, you know, what what the rest of Scripture says about the way God views his children, the way God views, you know, our approach and our response to the word and our response to the gospel, we don't find anywhere where God says, oh, man, I just wish that, that you would either embrace me or reject me. And you're just riding the fence, and so you're lukewarm. Now I'm going to reject you. Like the, the, We don't find that kind of language. We don't find that kind of example. The consistent presentation is that the expectation is that we are following Jesus Christ and that we are bearing fruit for Christ, and that is the consistent expectation. And uh, there's nowhere that God says, oh, I wish that you were at least completely against me. Like We don't find that, and we don't find any hints of that. So I think it would be it would create an odd picture for us to come to that conclusion from that revelation text. Whereas if we just study the text and we if we just think about how hot water and cold water are used and how there is this distaste for lukewarm water and how it is just not that that tepid water just is not helpful or useful, I think we can come to a right understanding of that without needing that archaeological information. And I think there have I think people have done that. I think I think if you there I think there have been commentaries and people that have written and preached on that text without knowing that archaeological information and have come to a right understanding and right teaching from that text. The real danger whenever we start saying that that extra information is necessary to arrive at understanding what God has said is now we you can't just hand someone a Bible and say this is the clear word of God he has spoken, you know, go study it. Right. We have to say, well, here's the semi-clear. Some parts are clear, some aren't clear. Word of God, and here's a handbook and a dictionary and this and this and this that you need um, to to go and to uh, to understand what God has said. Again, and, those things are all very helpful, but to say necessary, now we've kind of changed our view of the Bible. Right. You've shifted this, the, the locus of authority. Hmm. Is is the Bible authoritative or is it not? If you're going to change your interpretation of the text based on archaeological information, you have two choices. One, uh, maybe okay, I think it's fair to say, well, I need to re-examine this text, see if I understood it correctly. That's fair. But if you're changing it just because of archaeological information, is your authority the Bible or is your authority this archaeological information? Yeah. And I think that's well, the and- crucial question. And because I said uh, dictionary, I want to make clear, you do have to be able to speak and un- or read a language to be able to understand yeah, the Bible. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say that. I mean, that's obviously a prerequisite to being able to read the Word of God is being able to read. But, uh, you know, beyond that, do you need Mounts's Greek dictionary before you can understand what God has said? I don't believe that's the case. So you got to figure out the right balance there. Jeff in Utah asks... How wrong can a person be and still be saved? Hmm. I will start by saying there's probably 
<laughs> because I know who Jeff is, there's probably a level of uh, uh, cheekiness here where, you know, he's he's wanting us to, I don't know. I, I don't think this is a pure question, Jeff. Sorry if I'm, <laughs> if I'm imputing to you impure motives. But, um, but if someone is asking that question, that's obviously not the right angle to take, right? Mm. You shouldn't say, well, how far off can I be and still get in? Right. <laughs> That's like asking how much uh, how much can I sin and God would still accept me or something like that. You know, it's like, well, the motive behind that question seems a little off. I would like to probe that if someone was asking me that question. But the the question though, I mean, eventually does have to be answered in the appropriate setting with the appropriate motives. How wrong can a person be and still be saved? So what do you say, Ken? Uh, well, there's obviously there are certain things that I think have to be in place, and the nature of the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone, uh, that is the, you know, the only means of salvation for us. Like, that absolutely has to be affirmed. When we start getting into a lot of other things, I do believe that, uh, praise God, we can be very wrong <laughs> and mm. still be saved. Uh, uh, God is is so very gracious to us in this way that even as we you know as we think about one of the one of the conversations that Jeremy and I had going back a few years when we were still reexamining the chart and considering all these different things, Jeremy, you asked me this question: If an individual disagreed with you on every mm-hmm. issue in the secondary column, would you still be able to embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ? And it's an interesting mental exercise as you think of the chart and how we've divided things up. And that person would be in a very, very different place theologically than me. And we probably would never be able to assist, you know, have membership in the same church. It may be even be difficult to do some forms of ministry mm-hmm. with one another because of the nature of the mm-hmm. differences. And yet... If we go down the line and see 100% disagreement and still be able to say, hey, you know, I, I still think you're a brother in Christ because there's an affirmation of the gospel, we can be very wrong. And I praise God for that reality that God is so gracious to us, even despite our limitations and failings. Even, you know, we talk about the noetic effects of the fall, just say even the fall impacting our ability to think and reason clearly at times. Sometimes that applies to how we understand some theologies. But God is gracious. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's about all we can say on that, really. Uh, So I'm fine with leaving it right there. All right. Well, here's one that we can surely sum up in a mailbag episode with just a couple minutes. Sarah in Utah asks about predestination and making a confession of faith through choice. Does being predestined negate your free will? Okay, let's uh, answer this in 30 seconds. Got to move on to the next one. <laughs> you try to answer that in 30 seconds. Yeah, that's absolutely difficult. I actually, um, last night, I was we were talking before we started recording here, I got in volume three of Kenneth Wiest's uh, Greek, what's it called? I don't even know what the name of it's called, but it's a three-volume set with the fourth Words, volume yeah. being his translation of the New Testament. Word studies in the Greek New Testament. Okay. All right. So yeah, I got volume three in last night and I took a snapshot of this. Um, actually, let me grab it off my shelf. You, you, you say something, because I, I want to read more than just what I took from the snapshot. So you say something really profound and wise oh, here while yeah. I get the book ready. <laughs> 
Well, I think when Jeremy listens to this later, he's going to be sorely disappointed. But uh, for those who don't know about Kenneth Wiest, he was a professor at Moody Bible Institute for many years. And uh, he's written some really great things. His expanded translation is uh, particularly helpful as he writes about things. But, uh, oh, here's Jeremy back. Yeah, yeah. Well, thankfully, the page number was in that little picture I took, so I was able to jump right to it. But uh, he's talking about the very issue of predestination and free will. Kenneth Weiss upheld strongly that God predestines to salvation. And uh, just listen to how he wrestles with this. I, I love this. A Greek scholar um, who died, I think he, he died in 1961, but just loved the Word of God. And this is one of the hardest issues to grasp. But this is what he says. Um, after quoting Peter from Acts chapter... Uh, no, what, what he wasn't quoting from Acts. He's quoting Peter from somewhere. Um, and he says, Peter refers here to the act of placing faith in the Lord Jesus as the one who shed his precious blood at Calvary's cross to atone for man's sin. He's actually talking from the about the first few verses of First Peter chapter 1. Okay. He says, the act of God the Spirit in setting apart the individual in his work of bringing that lost sinner to the place where he puts his faith in the Savior. There is nothing in the sin-darkened heart of a sinner which would reach out and appropriate the Lord Jesus as Savior. The hand of faith must be energized or motivated by the Holy Spirit. He supplies the faith necessary. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. So, so far, sounding very strongly like, well, you just cancel out free will. And that's how you resolve this, right? Next sentence. And yet it is true that each lost sinner must, by an act of his will, place his faith in the Savior. He has that responsibility. Jesus said, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And that is sublimely true. But in Revelation 22, whosoever will let him take from the water of life freely, is also true. We cannot reconcile or understand these things, but we can trust God for them and believe them. There you go. There's, if you're a, an expert in the Greek New Testament, that's where you land on that yeah. issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that classic, uh, I, I think Spurgeon said it a lot. Uh, I don't know if it's original with him or if he got it from someone else, but... Uh, you know, when you're approaching the pearly gates and it says, whosoever will may come and you walk through and then you look on the backside and it says, you know, elect from the foundation of the world, right? There's, yeah. there's it's kind of those two sides of the same coin where, yes, God is sovereign and that includes over salvation. And yet there is man responsibility to respond in faith to the gospel offer. So there's how those things come into balance with each other. These are debates that will never fully be settled on this earth. That's God's business. Like yeah. Doug Wilson has said once upon a time, we're just June bugs over here trying to do quantum physics. So I like, I really like that illustration. <laughs> two questions from Twitter to finish this out. Two people I've never met personally, so I don't know what state they live in. But Eileen says, I've recently heard that when ladies' hair is discussed, I believe in 1 Corinthians, the original language is the same as the Nazarite vow. Does this mean a lady should never cut her hair? Serious question. The assembly of saints we are considering joining teaches this. Hmm. Wow. We, Eileen Marie. Well, uh, the there's a lot of... 
just like to say no (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot i'd like to say but ken kind of says it there uh just summed up no when ladies hair is discussed i believe in first corinthians the original language is the same as the nazarite vow why don't you talk about the difficulties with original language stuff there ken the way that that question is posed so yeah, the, the original language is the same as the Nazarite vow. I would like to know exactly what is being referred to in relation to that. Or is it or what what are we talking about here? Is there a particular word that's in question? Um and having studied that, that is not something that I can recall coming across as far as, oh yeah, it's the same word. Are we just talking about the words that says don't cut your hair? Um I'm just I'm just stuck there a little bit because without there being specifics being given, I can't really respond to that. But the original language can't be the same as the original language of the Nazarite vow like, because Nazarite vow is in Greek. Hebrew, yeah. <laughs> and First uh, Corinthians 11 is Greek. I mean, if you want to do Septuagint comparison, perhaps that's something. I'm wondering if she means, uh, or if this church is teaching in... 1 Corinthians eleven six. if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head, saying, look, it's disgraceful to ever get a haircut if you're a woman. Or um, in, let's see, verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Okay, maybe that is what's being referred to. The, the cut-off or shaved comment in verse 6, the um, cut short or shaved, is kind of the way to, to consider that. Paul's talking about having the hair cut short as a man's hair is cut short. Not all men had shaved heads then. Not all men, of course, have shaved heads now. But what is natural for the man, Paul says, is shaved or short hair. And what is unnatural for the woman is shaved or short hair. Uh, a shaved head or short hair. So that's what he's getting at there. It doesn't have to do with never ever getting a haircut. Uh, When Paul says in verse 15 that a woman's long hair is a glory to her, it's kind of the same idea that uh, the longer hair is what's given by God. That's her natural covering that the quality of a woman's hair is different than the quality of a man's hair. Their, their heads are different. And um, it's a beautiful thing for a woman to have long hair. The Nazarite vow, on the other hand, has to do with vowing to abstain from a razor touching the head at all, the hair being cut at all, for a specific amount of time. In uh, some instances, there were those who were set apart from birth to be under a Nazarite vow. In other instances, like in Acts 21, it appears as though there are people that go into that vow just for a certain time. So that would be categorically different, and any group of people claiming to be a New Testament church saying, you are in sin if you ever get a haircut, woman. Well, they're just going beyond Scripture, and they're putting a man-made yoke on your neck. Hmm. Anything else to say on that one? I don't think so. Well, then the final question from Matt on Twitter. He says, what about church covenants? Are church covenants necessary? Are church covenants good? How wise is it for one to have extra-biblical requirements? Does non-compliance with a church covenant warrant church discipline? What if it's over a matter included in the church covenant, but it can't be found in Scripture? Should you just find another church then? So basically, how should membership work in the local church, especially when it comes to what you require as leadership of the membership? And this is something 
that you've been going through in the last several months, right, uh, Ken, with your church plant, developing a church covenant? Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we've been developing, moving towards membership. We are, like I said, our church plants coming up. You know, here we are May 5th. We actually, we just hit two years. Uh, that's amazing. Time goes by so fast. Praise God. Uh, so two years of existence, and yet without membership. So we've been meeting, we've been, you know, f- you know, functioning like a church, but we haven't had membership. Well, that's changing. We've gone through, we have been going through a membership class, teaching about what membership means and such. And one of the questions that we've kind of thought through and wrestled with a little bit is, you know, should we have a church covenant? Uh, church covenants, I'm most familiar with church covenants from a Baptistic tradition, are you aware of other non-Baptistic churches that have a church covenant? I've never experienced a church covenant. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm way out of the discussion here. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I, cannot speak to other church traditions. I don't know what Presbyterians do for membership or membership covenants, et cetera, but I am most familiar with it in the Baptistic tradition. And in the Baptistic tradition, a lot of times, especially these old school church covenants, a lot of them have had a lot of extra-biblical requirements built into the covenant that guards and governs your individual behavior as a person, not even in relation to the church, but just as an individual. For example? For example, you uh, promise to abstain from alcohol, from smoking, from, you know, if we're going back years, playing cards and going to the movies and going to the dances and going to the theater, stuff like that. Uh, you promise to abstain from all those things because we are, and the principle that's being applied to those arenas is abstain from the appearance of evil. Right? We don't we don't want to be, we don't want to have the appearance of evil upon us. So we abstain from these things altogether. Uh, and it has been, you know, there's been a correction on those things. I do believe as time has gone on, we've recognized okay, these are. You know, we're creating laws where there is no law, so we don't need to require these things of our people to be members within our church. And so a lot of covenants that exist today focus more on personal piety in areas where Scripture does speak to, or speaks to, okay, how are we going to interact with others within the body of Christ, again, applying actual biblical commands. So as we have been developing membership at our church, Pillar Fellowship, one of the things that we have talked about is the church covenant, and we've decided to have a church covenant, but it is a covenant that is designed to be structured specifically. It reflects the language of our Constitution such that when you when you are affirming the church covenant, you're basically pledging to abide by what is in our Constitution, how we function as a church. And secondly, all of those things that we are talking through are specific things that the Bible talks about, about how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. And so it is just a—so so the question is, would non-compliance warrant church discipline? Well, if you're being disobedient to the covenant, our covenant, as it's, as it's structured this moment— it's actually disobedience to the scriptures themselves. So it could be a grounds for church discipline if there is persistent uh, disobedience to God's word and sin that is present there that needs to be called out and addressed. As far as if it's a matter in the in, that's in the church covenant that's not found in scripture, that's that's tougher. Um, mm. I don't know if you've ever thought through that. There's an aspect of ways uh, just a 
basic reality. Hey, you promised to do this and you're not doing it. Hmm. That's, That's an true. issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so a couple things I want to say to this. One is we have to be so careful about the churches we choose and the commitments we make. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have examples in scripture, like with Joshua and the Gibeonites of making a commitment and maybe it was a bad commitment, but you've made the commitment. All right. So consider what your word is worth. Consider what God would have you to do after you've told somebody you will do something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, you just need to be slow to make commitments. That's general wisdom, but uh, you, you got to think through that, but kind of combining the last question and this question, because they're somewhat similar. Um, I will, enter into this discussion, my book, Uncovering 1 Corinthians 11. There you go. Uh, the lighting is doing some strange things there. But I have a 10 or 11-page section toward the back that's all about church leadership perspective with announced doctrine and formal insistency. So um, that it's something that church leadership has to think through in a number of areas, actually, because the reason I include it in this book is because people would say, well, if you believe that women should cover and men should uncover, that's you're just going to have to pull church discipline on anybody who doesn't follow suit on that. And so it's like, okay, well, let me spend some time writing this out in a book. And so I did. And it actually goes beyond just the head covering issue. It goes uh, into other areas as well. So I would say check that out. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, for 99 cents, the Kindle version. You can get a, the free PDF on my website, or you could buy the hard copy book. Um, and I think that would help you think through some of these things. If you're already in a situation where you've covenanted to do something, well, you've got to figure out a way out of that in a way that honors God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, we don't know the details, so we can't really give you much more than that. So there is, there, it's interesting that there are places in the Old Testament where, so, okay, and you mentioned uh, the Gibeonites, right, and Joshua. I preached Joshua through, and the Gibeonites would be a great band name. It would be. <laughs> well, I preached through, um, I preached through Judges, and in Judges, there is that individual who, um, makes a vow, Lord, if you give me this victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Japheth or Jephthah or... Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter upon returning home. And so the text says that he did what he promised to do. There's debate about what happened there. I believe he actually sacrificed her. And um, he should not have. There's There are texts in Old Testament, in Old Testament law... That if you make a rash oath and you discover, oh no, I shouldn't have made that oath, there is provision within the law of God to, okay, I'm going to offer this sacrifice now, and that's going to atone for the fact that I'm not going to fulfill that oath because it was a rash oath that never should have been made. But it still places weight and emphasis upon the seriousness of your word because you couldn't just get out of it. Mm. You had to offer a special sacrifice for it, which further cements the significance of your word and what your promise is worth. So there are, I, I do believe, like Jeremy said, there's there's ways to honor God in not fulfilling your promises, but you need to think, you need to take those very seriously and think through them very carefully so that we can say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yeah, that is, it definitely should be plan B, if not plan Z, 
yeah. where you're in a situation where you're trying to figure out how to get out of something you've said you you'll do. Um, another Old Testament passage I like to bring to bear on this too is Numbers thirty, where there's provision actually for the women who like mm-hmm. a daughter or a wife who makes a rash vow, her uh, father or her husband can undo that. And so that puts a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of the men mm. to be very, very careful about the commitments you make. Be careful about how you lead your family because it's at the end of the day, um, under the law, it would be up to you then to, if if you committed to something that you didn't want to fulfill, it'd be up to you to lead in making a sacrifice now and admitting you're wrong in making that rash vow. So yes, it's a very serious issue. Amen. Well, we made it through the mailbag. We've reached yeah. the end. I'm scraping the bottom of the burlap, and there's nothing left. Ken, how do we finish this episode? Well, we thank you all for listening. We thank you for writing in. And if you have other questions, you know you don't have to wait for a mailbag call to send those in. You can go ahead and send those in. You can, again, comment on Facebook. Send us a Facebook message. Send us that voicemail like we talked about at the beginning. Email us, show at dtheology.com. And I was actually a little bit surprised we got some Twitter questions because we don't up on Twitter as much. But uh, that's, that's a way you can reach out as well. In our next episode, if you're still listening, you can get privileged info here. Our next episode will be a major announcement about the future of this show. So you will want to pay attention to your RSS feed and check out the next episode that comes out. That's right. Well, I guess that's about it, isn't it? For now. Until next time. Do Theology. <laughs>I had to uh, I had to watch you very carefully there because Zoom filtered out the really high pitched as you went up and oh, up and it up, did. so it stopped. So I was watching your face like I know he's still making noise, so I can't say it just yet. I have to hold it off. It'll be in the OBS recording. Uh, and then good quick thinking. Whew.